Hi, it's Lauren, and I would like to personally thank you for tuning in to episode two of Fun Theater, the podcast. Please enjoy. Good afternoon, and welcome to Fun Theater Co., the podcast. My name is Kayla Schultz, and today I'm chatting with collective members Lauren Freights and Marcus Sharnoff. Hello. Hey. We are recording in our apartment right now in downtown Baltimore on this beautifully rainy day because we are all emotionally recovering from a crazy election week in which President-elect Joe Biden has been declared victorious. Woo! (laughs) (laughs) Uncle Joe! I think it's been invigorating for me to be in the middle of such like a pro-Biden area. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Being in the middle of the city, I feel like we're, I guess, lucky to have that environment. Yeah, because we live so close to the police station and the courthouse, it's been on, like, Mm. high security. Yeah, it has. The past week. There's just been, like, cops stationed outside of my building and outside Mm. of uh, the courthouse and the Mm. post office 24 hours. That started happening post-election? That started happening on election night, and then that carried over through the weekend. They, like, just left. I mean, I guess that makes sense. Never know what yeah. those crazy Trumpies are going to do. I know. You never know. Yeah. I feel like a lot of people think they're worried about violence from the left, but when in reality, yeah. I mean, we're worried about the opposite. Like you said, uh, the courthouse and the post office had heightened security. And uh, when they were still counting votes in Pennsylvania, you know, they also had to increase security because these two people from Virginia. Oh, my God. We're driving up to Pennsylvania <laughs> with guns. So of crazy. course. Yeah. That's the thing about those Trumpies. They bring the guns. They have them. Yeah. They have the guns. They have and the guns. You know who doesn't have the guns? The left. The left. <laughs> <laughs> I'm showing up to a protest with a gallon of milk. That's yeah. what I've got. Yeah. Because we're going to get tear gas. Yeah. But, you know. Just dump it. Trumpies. <laughs> can block highways and... Yeah, but it's fine when they do it. Yeah, it's fine yeah, when, it's they, fine do when it. they do it. It's because they'll shoot back. Is the, it's true. the real That's tea. The thing. They have the firepower to shoot back. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But, you know, there's good people on both sides. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Naturally, as it is November 2020, in today's episode, we are talking about political theater. It's a phrase that's been thrown around in the media so much recently to refer to the spectacle of politics, the techniques used by politicians to gain attention. To us, as theater artists, we would first interpret political theater a little differently. There are two meanings of political theater, the one that applies to the realm of politics and the one that applies to art. Political theater, politics term, is a pretty difficult thing to create a solid definition of. Both sides of the political spectrum use the term political theater meaning what's just for show, the facade put up by the opposite party. It is almost always used to accuse someone else of something that they might likely be doing themselves. And especially in the 2020 presidential election that we just experienced, it seemed that every single part of the campaign trail to get up to it and the election was just political theater. Everything has gotten just for show and to get that media attention. And I'll ask you guys, how have you felt impacted by that? How has that influenced your daily life being kind of absolved into what we can't ignore or run away from? I, I mean, uh, 
I feel like the whole election process was just very overwhelming in a sense of what's gonna happen. I felt like, not that I was living in fear, but that I was living in just this constant state of anxiety. Yes. We have, you know, this one candidate who is not as progressive as a lot of people wanted him to be. Mm-hmm. And people feel like was rigged that he was the presidential nominee. And then we have the other candidate who is actively <laughs> a horrible, horrible person and has done nothing but bad things for this country. Yeah. Nothing but worsen the already present racism and xenophobia and homophobia and transphobia that has been always present in America. Yeah. But... You know, there. I feel like there has been a resurgence in the past four years. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, it was just this overwhelming feeling of what's going to happen. Is this terrible, terrible, terrible criminal criminal (laughs) person going to win because of the Electoral College? Mm -hmm. Or is this person who is not necessarily the most progressive person going to win Mm -hmm. and who was just shit on constantly? throughout the election process, especially when it was just the two of them running. Mm-hmm. That whole <laughs> five days yeah. or so of that election process, waiting for the, <laughs> waiting for the that, call. That is crazy. Yeah. That, that took a long time. <laughs> that yeah. was a lot. And the fact that we were all so glued to it. Mm-hmm. You could separate yourself if you wanted to, Mm -hmm. just a little bit. Right. I think at most, I would probably, at most being an hour, it would be like 30 minutes to an hour that I wasn't looking at my phone. Mm -hmm. But other than that, it was probably like every five, ten minutes that I was checking. Constantly And refreshing and checking. I think all the theatrical techniques they've been using to get our attention like that have, I mean, clearly been working. You look at the first debate, that disgusting yeah that literally watching that i was so shocked i was i was i was like dumbfounded how is this actually happening like how is this happening on live television this is america right now and this is embarrassing Yeah. yeah i went uh through and read all of the fact checking Mm-hmm. From the all of the questions, and almost all, almost all of Trump's responses were false, exaggerated, or misleading. And then there was there was a few of Biden's that were um, exaggerated, and then I think he had a few that were misleading. Um, and then he had one one that I saw that was false, but only on. It was like a weird technicality. Mm. Mm. Okay. Um, but I thought that that was interesting because while watching the first debate, anytime Trump would talk, anytime he's talking and like, it's just on live television, you could, you're watching and you're listening and you're like, that's a lie. Yeah. You know like, he's You just made yeah. that up. Check for you right he now. just made that up right now. He yeah. just made it up off the top of his head because he thought it would sound good. Literally every time he speaks, I want to punch him. Yeah. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> I literally want to shut him up. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. 
I don't want him to be talking anymore. And that's why we voted him out. Do you think that the intentional lying and sharing misleading and false information by the 45th president could be qualified as political theater? Lying. I mean... As a technique. Yeah. Yeah. I would say so. I mean, if the act of political theater is causing a, like, not necessarily a scene, but for, I mean, yes, it, I mean, it kind of is. It's what got him attention. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, theater scene, hand in hand, mm-hmm. obviously. It's like what you put up, you know, literally for show. I mean, he wants people to pay attention to him. He wants that attention, whether it's good or bad. He mm-hmm. doesn't care. And it helps, it does help his campaign. Yeah. Yeah, clearly. I mean, but it there, worked once. Mm hmm. Mm-hmm. It worked once. It's <laughs> <laughs> okay. Ten percent of voters uh, are Gen Z. That's good. That's insane. I know. Actually, I even know. more next time. I know. Even more next time. The most diverse generation. Mm-hmm. Diverse, progressive generation. And yes. they will be the most mentally ill generation out of any. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we're fine. We're just vibing. Yeah. Vibing. Vibing. <laughs> Whatever. We grew up with the internet. We did. Yeah. That definitely contributes. And that's why we're like, that's all that stamps is. <laughs> mentally ill. Mentally ill. Yeah. That's all that mental illness. Totally. The internet. The internet. Mm-hmm. And it's not just how we can be like, oh, you know, social media, we're like comparing ourselves to others, which of course that's true. But also it's like, we know too much. We're, like, yeah. getting too much information and seeing Constantly. and hearing about all these bad things all the time. Mm-hmm. People used to be a lot more, like, ignorant than they are today. Yeah. And that's why that's we're why... more, like, fragile because, like, the world is not. Because ignorance now is kind of unexcusable. Because it's yes. like you have, you have the internet to your disposal. Use it. Dude. I was honestly just thinking about ignorance today and how my coworker who has been at this job for... Uh, over a month now, can't use the computer. And he's, what, what, 55, 56, so he literally has no excuse whatsoever to not know how to use a computer because they've been around for 30 years. Yeah, They've been around since the late 1980s. Oh, my God. And he can't use a computer. I had to show him how to click on an icon on the desktop. What? (laughs) Today... Has he never... Today? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, Lord. (laughs) That's not good. Oh, my God. (laughs) There's no room in this world for ignorance. No. If you're ignorant, step the fuck up. Grow up. Step it up. Step it up. Use that search engine. Learn. Don't fall. Don't let the algorithm trap you into yeah. one view either. Make sure that you are consuming media totally. from both the left and right. Yeah. Why don't you go to both of the campaign addresses right now and read their platform online? It'll be the most direct source mm-hmm. of information about what they intend to do and yeah. what their active plan is. Exactly. So, I was watching... Uh, Fox News. <laughs> yeah. I was okay. watching, I was watching Fox Diverse News. sources. The diverse sources, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and it was, on, it was talking about foreign policy, essentially talking about Biden's 
plan, and the woman, I don't know her name, because I don't typically watch Fox News, so I couldn't tell you the reporter. Um, Too blonde? Yes. <laughs> Tommy Laren? Wild no. guess there. <laughs> oh, Thanks. Um, yes, she was a blonde lady, and she was talking essentially about foreign, po- she was talking about foreign policy, and everything that she was saying, I was like, wow, all this sounds really good, but then the inflection that she was using was so negative, and I was like, I wonder mm. if she is really trying to make this sound like a bad thing, Thanks. so that people will be like, yeah, we shouldn't have relationships with other nations, we shouldn't have our allies, like, it was just really interesting to me, because I was yeah. like, all of these are positives, which she's saying. These are all positives, except for she's spinning it on its head, so it sounds like a negative. Totally. I mean, whether that fuels the narrative you want to live of, yes, that is a bad thing. Yeah. Or you, like, might be, like, a kid in a home hearing about political things for the first time on TV. Mm-hmm. Mm. And just, like, in the way that you perceive, like, the way other people talk about things is, like, what you know about the world. Yeah. But the rhetoric on Fox News is just something Very else. dangerous rhetoric. It's just something <laughs> else. Yeah. What you were saying about how Fox News spinning things to basically be like, fuck everyone, we can do whatever we want, I mm-hmm. feel like that's very American. Or very... It ant- was. Yes. You know, America... America. It's a very white American dream. It's yeah, the white American dream where you don't need anyone's help. You have mm-hmm. two point five kids with a white picket fence and the the house and you don't need anyone's help. And that's very anti American in a sense. Because I feel like as the three of us as American citizens mm-hmm. we come from this place where We have all of these freedoms, and we have all of these, you know, uh, we kind of can do whatever the fuck we want in America. Yeah. uh, More so than in other countries. Mm -hmm. I feel like a big part of America is having community. Those communities really help and uplift you, and you can't get anywhere in this world without help from someone. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Somehow. You know, as a child, your parents help you. Mm -hmm. Uh, Your teachers help you. Your friends help you. Your peers help you learn and grow and become the person you are. Mm -hmm. And America has always been this place where people can come, build lives. Because you can do whatever you want. Yeah. Yeah. Because you can do whatever you want. Even if we are on colonized land. You can be land, a criminal and a president at the same time. You can be a criminal. Time. But you can't be a criminal and vote at the same no, time. you can't do that. Political theater is also defined as politically charged theater. Theater with a political message. Theater has been political for a very long time. And political theater can span any genre or style. In ancient Greek comedy, Aristophanes is considered to be one of the first writers of true political satire. Political satire is a genre that can take many shapes, from Moliere and Shakespeare, having plenty of mockery of upper-class people and political figures, to the literal week-by-week updates done by Saturday Night Live. Political theater had also been mastered by the epic theater style created by Bertolt Brecht, emphasizing specific engagement with the audience about the illness of their societies. There is a really broad range of what could be considered political theater. A very direct example is when our professor from Mason, Ed Giroux, starred in The Originalist, produced by Arena Stage, 
in which he portrayed the late Justice Antonin Scalia. If all theater needs to be called political theater is for it to carry a strong message about society, I think you could essentially say that all theater is inherently political because it is the communion of people coming together. And everyone has their own individual lens and biases to which they see the world. Everyone in your audience has a different view, like a small little reflection of society. And I'll pose a question to you guys. Is all theater political? I think inherently all theater is political because theater is typically a reflection of the world and what is going on around it. And everything has to do with politics now. I mean, yeah, everything does have to do with politics, but I would argue it doesn't have to be political. It doesn't have to be, no. I mean, uh, you look at shows like Wicked, My Fair Lady, Mm -hmm. and Guys and Dolls, which aren't (laughs) inherently political, but they can be political if you choose to create that idea and that notion Mm -hmm. either through the costumes or the the set, or if you do the piece through that lens. Mm -hmm. But I don't necessarily think all theater is political unless you would say that creating all art is political in and of itself. As if the act of creating art is political. The act of the creation of art is political. Mm -hmm. You're using your voice to tell another story. You're using your voice Mm -hmm. to speak someone else's words in the sense of the performing arts. Yeah. I definitely think all theater is political if you tie the politics of it to just the general like advocacy and message that it shows. Mm -hmm. Yes. If like that equates to like a political issue, then Mm -hmm. totally. Yeah. And I, I like your point about the whole act of it potentially being political as well. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Especially with new legislation and hopefully some reform and economic help that we're going to get from the new president based on the issues that we've all experienced from COVID-19 reminded me of, you know, and it has been reminding everybody, FDR's New Deal in 1935. People are wondering if we're going to have like a mass amount of change and reform and public funding and project creation. And specifically in 1935, as a part of the New Deal, the Federal Theater Project was created, which supplied finances and jobs to keep theater alive in America. Maybe we can get some kind of large artist (laughs) relief bills now. I mean, we know that we could have never expected that from President Trump, and hopefully with President Biden, we can recover from that. And maybe that will go straight into the creation of super politically charged plays. Yeah. Even though who knows how long it's going to be before we can, before we'll see any theater, like, with literally, like, I don't know, Mike Pence as a character. That would be intense. (laughs) Yeah. And probably be a little while from now, but it's eventually going to happen somewhere. You know, it already is probably happening in some kind of comedy. You know, we obviously see it on TV. Somebody is like out SNL. there being we that see them fly every night. in his head. Yeah. yeah. Totally. The fly in his head. The fly in his head. That, we need to interview that his. fly about political theater. We do need to interview that, that fly. That was uh, Lizzo's Halloween costume was the fly. <laughs> <laughs> it was so funny. I, when you were saying theater with Mike Pence as a character, I don't know why, 
but the first thought in my head was Mike Pence as Javert and Les Mis. <laughs> <laughs> that is hysterical. I think it could work. See, that's the kind of way to, I mean, well, maybe Les Mis isn't a good example of just a for fun show because it literally is about a revolution. Yeah, it's literally political. It's about the French but Revolution. Like, imagine the kind of like subtle American message you would like send if you, you know, cast somebody who looked like Mike Pence. What if it was Americanized? What if you made it set in America? Yeah, what if instead of I honestly, I I'm I'm thinking about it and I think it could work. You know how I love crazy visions of things. So. And you know how they wave the French flag when they're at the barricades? Yes. Yeah. I'm just like envisioning that being the American flag and the whole like barricade is just like posters and chairs and tables and just a bunch of Trump shit. Like, yeah. <laughs> like MAGA light, hats. Like MAGA hats strewn in the streets. Oh my God. I have this vision. That'd be crazy. I think it could work. I think it could work too. I mean, I'm Don't starting. tread on me. Don't tread on me. Like someone hanging out the, of a Have you seen those t-shirts? Uh, he can grab my pussy. No. That's hilarious. I really like grab him by the ballot. And we did. And we did. Going back to what you're saying about having political theater written about this time, Mm -hmm. in 2016, during um, a couple months prior to Election Day, I saw the Trump card at Willie Mammoth in D.C., and it was performed by Mike Daisy, directed by Isaac Butler, and it was a two-hour show, just a monologue, just Mm -hmm. a two-hour monologue about... Trump and Trump's family and basically Mike Daisy told the entire story of Trump's upbringing all the way up to what is leading him to run for president and I thought that that was really interesting because it was a piece of political theater that I was getting to see prior to the election it was just this man essentially Mm -hmm. begging the audiences to vote and to to make sure he does not get in office and I thought that it was extremely unique yeah, extremely oh, unique, and I it was it felt really special to be able to watch it while the election was going on because I was also very nervous in 2016 when it was yeah. becoming very mm-hmm. yeah. real and a real possibility that he was going to be elected into office. But at the same time, there was so much. I still had so much hope at that time that I didn't really believe yeah. it could happen. Yeah. But wow. Man, flashback to 18 year old us. In 2016. Listening to Hamilton. Listening to Hamilton. (laughs) My favorite, like, political show I've ever seen was in 2017 at Arena Stage in Washington, D.C., which is famous for political theater. Because they do, like, American plays about America right in the nation's capital. I love what they do. And this play was called Roe, written by Lisa Loomer. It was about essentially about the Roe v. Wade case, making it all the way up to the Supreme Court and, you know, eventually passing. It was just a beautiful show that really focused on the plaintiff, Norma McCorvey, who was played by Sarah Bruner in the show. 
but she had passed away on like the day that I had gone to go see it. Oh, oh. Gosh. it was crazy. And as I was looking up the show today to like make sure that I wanted to give credit to all these people, I was seeing a lot of like that all the designers were female or at least had had like female sounding names, <laughs> except for the director and the dramaturg. I was like, oh, so. This whole, like, women play, women's rights play, was directed by a man. Oh, then maybe at least the dramaturg was a woman. Oh, no. Never mind. (laughs) So that's just something to pay attention to as we all move forward into... And that was 2017. That was 2017. It was 2017. It's just crazy that this is such a obvious example of like who really should be talking and I still clearly came out of that show with like a great you know understanding of the like issue and had a great time like watching it but that definitely was like oh I wonder maybe if I would have felt differently or it had a different kind of connectivity to it if it was artistically led and motivated by somebody who had more of a personal relationship to the issue. So if most art is at least a little bit political or can be political, does it have a responsibility to have some kind of activism tied to it? I don't think that all art needs to be political or have a life-altering impression on every audience member that is going to change the way that they see the world. Mm -hmm. I don't expect that when I go in to watch, like, Little Shop. Um, Yeah. (laughs) But I do definitely think that it's important for... I, I do think it's important for art to have a message and for the audience to learn something new. Um, or at least that's the type of art that I want to produce. As artists, I think it's very important that we do share our voices and we do speak out about injustices through our work. Mm -hmm. And it's our job to bring our politics to our art. Mm -hmm. And it's our job to speak out on injustices. Now, not everything Mm -hmm. we do has to, you know, incorporate those things. Yeah. I think that um, the audiences that are typically drawn to theaters are usually older white mm-hmm. people. I mean, they are older white people. So I yeah, think that... we haven't even talked about that yet. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's who theater is accessible to. It's yeah. older mm-hmm. white people who have money. Mm-hmm. Theater is expensive. It's so expensive. Yes. It's expensive it's so to expensive. see. It's expensive to create. And which is a, a crime because you know who doesn't get that money? The technicians and the yeah. actors yeah. and the, the stage managers the and the people yeah. building the actual work. Theater's a poor man's art form, but so is any art, mm-hmm. if we're real. Or oil painting, that's really expensive. <laughs> <laughs> and by poor man's art, I mean, if you do theater, you're, you're probably poor. poor. <laughs> you're poor. <laughs> yeah. The people who go see theater are old white people. And we gotta educate them because they're not gonna Google. They're not gonna Google. They don't know how to use a computer. They don't know how to use a computer. And they're 56. Right. <laughs> yeah, that's crazy. That's actually, <laughs> honestly, I, that's amazing. That's not even like, that. that's phenomenal that he's avoided mm-hmm. not learning how to use a computer for that long. Right. That doesn't even make sense to me. What was he doing in those years? Do you know anything about his past? I know he lived in California for 30 years. That's, that explains it. 
a lot of drugs? Probably. Probably. So. <laughs> Yeah, if anything, drugs will keep you off of computers. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Is your kid spending too much time on the screen? Turn Give them drugs. drugs. Give them drugs. <laughs> They'll stare at the wall for hours instead of the television. <laughs> uh, Please don't actually give your children drugs. No. No. Unless your Unless. children are over 18. Or just really cool. Or just really cool. <laughs> <laughs> So let's begin to wrap up this episode with some recommendations. I would like to hear one thing you're listening to and one thing you're watching. What would you recommend to our listeners at home? Oh, only one. Okay. Well, I have been listening to Alicia, Alicia Keys' new album. She's back, and she's thriving, and she's gorgeous. And A Perfect Way to Die is... I can't listen to that song without... I can't even think about that song without yeah. crying. The first time I listened to that That's song, full-on, bawling, had to call my sister, couldn't <laughs> breathe. And I still, like, I couldn't even talk about it for a couple days after that. I was like, I can't. I can't even think about it. Um, and I have been binge-watching for a while, Power. On, it's on Hulu. And it is very good. The first season... It starts in like 2014, so it's 2014, but it gets better. They get some women in the writer's room, and it gets exponentially better. Um, The show is over, but there is a spinoff show, and it's Power Book 3, which is... I haven't started it yet, but I'm very excited to start watching it. My sister is in the pilot episode, and another episode. I just don't know which one, Um, but also on Hulu. Awesome. Okay. Marcus, what are you listening to? Um, something that has had a lot, a lot of replay value for me personally is Ungodly Hour by Chloe X. Halley. Uh, the top album of 2020, in my opinion. Um, those women. Those women. I mean, it's worthy of that title. Yeah, but that is my, my go-to album right now. Something that I just recently finished was Pen15, season two, which was just so incredibly poignant of that seventh grade that, experience. That season hit home. It for really, me. it for me, it's weird to watch as a trans man mm-hmm. who, when I was in seventh grade, that's what I was going through. And yeah. I so related to the experience of being a girl. So it was, it was really... Um, a weird experience for me to go and watch this show that would just take my breath away. Yeah. With how relatable yeah. it is. Yeah, those with, women, those women those, are brave. They are brave. Yeah. They're brave. And how they're the only adults I love. It's so And good. then all of the children actors. Incredible. Incredible. They're so they're good. They're so good. And it's ridiculous. But... That is something that I just finished watching. Highly recommend Pen15 if you have not seen it. Season 2 is Season so, 2 is so good. This is not really a spoiler, but I'll say it anyways because <laughs> okay. it's relevant to our podcast. They discover theater. They do. In this season. The theater I'm so excited to watch that. 
It literally, I'm like, oh my god, it just saved your life, Maya. Are you kidding? It's so good. You watch these girls just completely change. Wow. change. That's incredible. So That's much literally, gross. Literally, yeah. And uh, Anna as the technician, That I... was perfect. That was so <laughs> perfect. Was so great. I started crying. <laughs> I was like, oh my god, you oh. are a stage manager. She loves the theater. She wow. loves it. Yeah. Uh, just so relatable. It's powerful. So relatable. So good. So powerful. Yeah. The album I'm going to recommend is put together by this artist, Guru, and it is called Jazzmataz Volume 1. There are a few <laughs> volumes of this, but it is a hip-hop jazz fusion. This album was produced in 1993, and I just think everybody should listen to it. What's it it's called? It's incredible. We listened to Jazzmatazz recently. Jazzmatazz. Jazzmatazz. I think it was on Card Games Music. It was on I Card Games Music. I also am going to plug a playlist on Spotify. Yes. Called As I Type in Card Games, it doesn't. Oh, here we go. Card Game Music, right? Card it is games. called Card Game Music, created by Healy. H E A L E. You're the bomb with this playlist. Everybody should listen to it. It is really good. There's some bops on that playlist. You know, background music. It mm-hmm. feels like you're inside a movie. It's incredible. And it really is great for playing games. Yeah. It's and a it's a nice score to yes. whatever you're playing. It kind of totally. gets intense when the game gets intense, and yeah. then it gets chill when you're feeling confident Completely. and you're sitting with your cards behind your hands and you're like, mm-hmm. mm, I've got this, I'm winning. <laughs> <laughs> I know it started, we found it because we were looking for music. To listen to while playing card games. As one does in quarantine. So we were like, okay, card game music, and then found the one. I've been meaning to watch Mm -hmm. Money Heist, which Mm -hmm. I have heard Mm -hmm. great things. Me too. Everyone I've talked to is like, best show I've ever seen. So I'm excited to start it. But I have to finish Power first. Mm -hmm. Because I'm going to need another crime show. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode of Fun Theater Co. The Podcast. I am Kayla Schultz. I'm Marcus Sharna. I'm Lauren Freitz. Stay safe out there and keep up with the fun. Keep Keep up up with with the the fun. fun. Wear a mask, wash your hands. And make sure you're keeping up with the fun. Follow us on Instagram at fun.theater and visit our website, www.funtheatercollective.com.